afternoon. It's good to be at Arise again this year. And it's 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And so I know it's been a long day of lessons so far. Um, and there's more yet to come. So I want to start by, turn your attention to the screen, and I'm going to throw a picture up there. And think about what you see first. Maybe. There we go. All right. Raise your hand if you see a duck. That's the first thing you saw. Okay. Raise your hand if a rabbit is the first thing you saw. Fewer hands. Tilt your head to the left a little bit if you see, if you want to see the rabbit. Now you see it? Okay. You got you to tilt the head a little bit. All right. So that is called a perspective picture, and just as the name implies, it matters. It just depends on how you look at it as to what you see. Our topic this afternoon is biblical feminism. And if I were to ask five different ladies in the room to raise their hand and tell me and define what feminism is, I might get five slightly different answers. And that's really the difficulty of a lesson like this, is that each of us come from different backgrounds and have different opinions and some of us have lived a few more decades than others. And so we each view feminism a little bit differently. And so it's no surprise that in 2017, when Merriam-Webster decided that the word of the year was going to be feminism, that that spiked a bunch of internet traffic of people searching dictionaries online to try to determine what, in fact, feminism was. And so that's what we're going to spend a little bit of time in the first part of our lesson just trying to define the term, what actually is feminism? And Merriam-Webster says that feminism is organized activity on behalf of women's rights and interests. And while that's accurate, it's also a little bit vague. And so to really fully understand what feminism was and is, we've got to go to the history books for that. So we're going to have a little brief history of what feminism is. And in order to talk about feminism, you have to talk about it in waves. came in three waves. The first wave started in 1848 through the 1920s. And this is the area known as women's suffrage. And there are names like Sojourner Truth and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And these were the ladies that were activists during that time, marching and speaking and writing letters. And their goal was to achieve political equality primarily in an effort to have women vote, but they were also interested in women, be, women being able to work, women being able to have equal opportunity for education and also to own property. And so their uh, crowning achievement was the passage of the 19th Amendment that was ratified in 1920 where we as women did in fact receive the right to vote. The second wave, moving forward a little bit, is 1963 to the 80s. And the primary quest of this second wave of feminists was not just political equality, but they were interested in legal and professional equality. They worked on getting women the right to hold credit cards in their own name. They worked on um, the ability to apply for mortgages in women's names. And the reason 1963 is the date is because that is the year that a book entitled The Feminine Mystique was published. And that is given the credit for what really fanned the flame of women speaking out about their dissatisfaction with domestic roles and about their dissatisfaction with standard beauty conventions. And so this group of women began to reject makeup and high heels and shaving. And this group of women's claim to fame is in the, well, is in the realm of workplace 
equality and reproductive rights. They passed the Equal Pay Act that was supposed to uh, eliminate pay divisions between men and women, and yes, they even passed Roe versus Wade. Third wave, that began in the 90s. The third wave of feminism is a lot less defined. So they don't have any specific legislature that, was, that went along with it, and it doesn't have any sort of a defined end date. The aim is not political or legal equality, but it's social equality, and that's a lot more difficult to measure. I can, I can know if a woman is able to vote or not, and I can know what the salary of a woman versus a man is, but social equality is a little bit different of an animal. This group of women is also known historically as being more angry and militant than, their previous, than the previous waves of feminism. They were angry toward anybody, whether real or perceived, who considered women dumb, weak, or incapable. And unlike these predecessors, they, also, they did embrace the makeup and the high heels. They had the attitude of, I can do it myself, and also an attitude of, I can do it all, and I don't need anybody's help, I can have it all. Anita Hill might be a, a name that you recognize during that time. And she was recognized for her generation of, uh, by this generation of speaking out against workplace harassment. Women were, at this time, not in search of a piece of the man's pie, but they had now, were now in search of the entire pie for themselves. And so what characterizes this third wave is a cascade of mis sexual misconduct accusations and also women having, taking a significant role in Congress and Senate and taking more of those seats and serving in that capacity. So, that's feminism in a nutshell. And its history is filled with radicals, progressives, liberals and centrists, and counter movements and splinter movements, and there's no way that we could possibly embrace all of that. But regardless of the number of waves there were, or, the num or what number wave we're talking about, the question that we're going to ask this morning is how does that Im impact us as Christians? Is feminism biblical? And so for that, I want to dig in a little bit beyond, beyond the history and behind the definitions and talk about some of the attitudes that come along with what feminism represents. Number one, it's rebellion. And there's really no secret that revolutions and rebellion all throughout history, and even in the feminist movement, have brought about some really great things. I, for one, am grateful that I have the right to vote, and many other things that women previously did not have. And no doubt the feminist movement has really sparked a lot of those things. But there's an important principle here that we need to remember. Just because the result of something is good, does not mean that the initial action that brought it about should be condemned. Think about King Solomon and all of the wisdom and riches and leadership that he brought to the United Kingdom of Israel. Who were his parents? David and Bathsheba. It's okay, you guys can speak up. <laughs> David and Bathsheba. Can we condone anything about the relationship that brought them together and the actions that brought them together? No but still good came from it. The issue with rebellion is where does it stop? Where does feminism stop? What started off as seemingly really great thing of being, women being able to vote moved to, I don't really want to um, have any limitations on my sexual activity, so I want to have the right to be able to kill my children that I don't want. And even very recently, there is an actress that was quoted, a famous actress quoted as saying, 
in regards to the women's Virginia agenda. Until women can say whatever it is that we want, wear whatever it is that we want, and do whatever it is that we want, then we're moving backwards. It's complete disregard and disrespect for any authority other than myself. And we would call that secular humanism. Titus chapter 3 has something to say about that. And we're going to turn there in just a minute. But our next attitude that comes along with feminism is dissatisfaction. And rebellion and dissatisfaction really go hand in hand. The common thread is, any guesses? Selfishness. That's right, selfishness. When I'm not happy in my role in life or my station in life, of course I want to try to change that. And the primary thrust of feminism was, and it continues to be, that I can't find satisfaction inside the home. I can't have any contentment that is, there's no contentment that can be achieved if it's tied to men or if it's tied to children. And that's just as relevant in the church today because, the well, it's the rebellion that's brought up as, if I'm not satisfied with being able to use my talents and abilities in any way that I see fit to use them, namely leadership roles, then I'm going to try and change that. I'm not happy. And I think about the teachings of Jesus, and I think about all the epistles that have been written. And when it comes to our God-given roles, nowhere do I find authority or instruction or approval to go and rebel and jump ship just because I don't like the role that I've been given or that I'm not satisfied in my role. And don't misunderstand, I'm not talking about changing jobs. If you're not happy at your job at Burger King and you want to change to McDonald's, go right ahead because that is well within our uh, God's given ability for us to make that choice. But when it comes to instruction about learning to be content and serving honorably in roles that God has set for us, whether that's the role of a child, uh, being obedient to a parent, whether that's a slave serving a master, whether that's Christians being subservient to elders, and even men and women serving in our respective roles in the home and the church. My dissatisfaction does not give me the right to move into somebody else's role that I do not have the authority to have and that I do not have the qualifications to be in. Titus has something to say about that, too. We're going to go there in just a minute. Last attitude, derision. There was a common feminist phrase in the 70s, and I want to see if the Internet was right in saying that how, how, how popular it was. See if you can finish this um, phrase for those of you that might have been alive during that time. <laughs> a woman needs a man like a fish need a, say it again, bicycle. Who said that? Way to go, gold star. All right, a woman needs a man like a fish need a bicycle. What does that imply? That we don't need men, that I can do it better than men, and, well, men are worthless, right? Has that had an impact on our society over the years? Absolutely it has. We see it in the roles of our sitcoms where the fathers are played by dumb and incapable um, characters. We see masculinity in our, in our men being diminished and effeminate being praised. I personally see my husband being derided for offering his seat to a woman on public transportation, and she took high offense to that. And it's, we're foolish if we think that it also has our, it's made its way into the church and in our homes in the form of men not being willing to lead. So, the long-awaited turn to Titus. 
So flip open to Titus, and we're going to start in chapter 3. We're actually going to work backwards through the text, but as we're reading, I want you to look for the phrase, good works. If you're interested in marking in your Bible, this is one of the key phrases in the book of Titus. So look for good works. Chapter 3, verse 8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Move up to verse 1. Remind them to be submissive. This is Paul talking to Titus. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Are we finding any authority for derision and rebellion in, in, in any of these sorts of things? No. Okay, keep reading. Go, go backwards to chapter 2 and start in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are what? Zealous for good works. If ever you were looking for your purpose in life, that's it. Where our purpose is to serve God with good works so that he can be glorified. Go up to Titus chapter 2. We'll start in verse 3. We're going to talk about the different roles that uh, we are very well acquainted with in these verses. Chapter, uh, verse 3. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. The one who is opponent that who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Verse 9. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, not showing all good and, all, and but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Does it sound like those roles that we just listed are fluid and we can jump through to whichever one we want? They're quite clearly defined, right? So why read all of this? I mean, it's pretty clear that the roles of God are outlined for us and we should do them. It's pretty clear that he's condemning a rebellious spirit and that anyone who speaks ill of others, among other things. But it's more than just a simple exercise of what we can and can't do. The spirit through Paul gives the why he's given us all these instructions. Because when these attitudes and actions are present in us, they hinder our good works. When I have a rebellious spirit, it's hindering my good works. When I'm constantly deriding other people, it's hindering my good works. And that has something more of an effect than just my soul, doesn't it? Let your light so shine before men that they may what? See your good works and glorify God. 
when I have a rebellious spirit, I can cause not just myself, but the people around me to lose their souls because I'm not shining my light the way it ought to be. And there are a number of areas that we as women, um, even in this room, could be tempted to join in with these attitudes, whether it's treating our husbands like children because that's the way we see it on TV all the time. Maybe it's just complaining about the elders around the lunch table, and the list can go on and on. But I want to tackle this one since we're in Titus chapter 3. We live in a country, and it's unique for us. It's the application of this verse is unique for us, I believe, because we live in a country that currently grants us the right to peacefully protest. We can sign petitions. We can attend marches. We can um, write letters to Congress. We can let our voices be heard in the voting booth. And it's a privilege, and it's a blessing that's been unheard. It's unheard of in most countries before us. And so by all means, participate in those things. But if it's not done in the spirit of Christ, then it's detracting from our good works and it's not bringing glory to God. And we need to change course because Titus 2, chapter 3, or sorry, Titus chapter 3, verse 2 could just as well say, tweet evil of no one and avoid social media rants and debates. We've got to be careful of how our light is shining and making sure we're not bringing it dim. And so, in case it has not been perfectly clear, there is no such thing as biblical feminism. They're two opposing terms. And the feminist movement is so steeped in attitudes and actions that are contrary to the way that a Christian ought to be living that it's dangerous. Even movements, I want to caution you against movements called Christian feminism or evangelical feminism, they all look good on the surface, but if you read the fine print of those Really, their goal is to seek to undermine um, God's given role in promoting women in leadership where God has not authorized. So be careful about that. So what's the answer? We've got to make sure that we're aligned with Scripture. Whether we're talking about how we're to dress or who, who we're authorized to teach or any of those other things, the attitudes that we should possess are very important. And they must be aligned with Scripture. So number one attitude I'm so glad Carly already talked about this. It's submission. But why is it that submission is such a taboo thing for us to talk about? But why? It's because of feminism. It's, that's what has tainted our, thought, our thoughts about it because it's been, it's been mocked. Submission has been mocked for decades. But as Carly also mentioned, the fact of the matter is that it's only a very small fraction of our submission that has to do with us being women. It's not until if I choose to marry that I even have to submit to my husband. Long before that, hopefully I've learned to submit to my parents and my teachers and my employers and the government and the elders of the church. And that has nothing to do with me submitting uh, to a man. It has every, or me being a woman, it has everything to do with me um, submitting because we're simply Christians. But still, any Christian counselor would tell you that a child does not master, that does not master through consistent discipline that rebellious spirit at an early age will not be a successful employee, they won't be a successful spouse, they won't be a successful Christian because there's an element of them that will always be wanting to do things their way and not God's way. And so that's how I know that I'm speaking to a room full of ladies who really do know how to submit because you're here and you're wanting to improve your relationship and grow in your Christian walk with God. But I also know that there's a very big difference, and maybe some of us are a little more strong-willed than others, 
And there's a difference in knowing what Titus 2 and 1 Peter 3 commands as far as our submission goes. And then actually consistently following that is another thing. So, practically, five things to consider when I'm struggling with submission. Number one, this is not up on the thing, sorry. I had to turn in my PowerPoint too early. (laughs) Number one is pray, pray, pray. And that seems like the most obvious thing, but when we're trying to fix problems in our life, it's also often the most overlooked thing, even though it's the most powerful thing. So pray about it. Number two, resolve to keep your mouth shut. Maybe you are a young lady, tempted to complain when you're with your friends, either physically or virtually, about your parents. Resolve to keep your mouth shut. Maybe for those of you um, in the workforce, you're tempted to sit with those coworkers that are always deriding your, your boss. Resolve to keep your mouth shut. And wives, never, ever, 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 ever talk down about your husband to other people. Whatever the scenario is that you're contempted to complain in, resolve to keep your mouth shut. Number three, open your mouth and talk. If it is your desire and you recognize you're not being as submissive as you ought to be, talk to the person about it. Teens, talk to your parents. Wives, talk to your husbands. Christians, sisters, talk to your elders. Is that a difficult conversation to have? Yeah, it is. But it also shows great maturity, and I bet that they'll be willing to help you. I bet they'll be willing to praise you when you are working on it. And they'll praise you when they see you making an effort, particularly for wives. Your communication to your husband about your desire to help uh, to submit to him will also help him perhaps be aware of some of the areas where he might need to step up in leadership. This is not you talking to him as if he's your pet project, but this is your sincere desire to say, I'm, I should not be taking the leadership in these areas. I'm going to be stepping away. And so I'm just letting you know. And I'm here to support you as you pick up the slack. So pray, resolve to keep your mouth shut, and then open your mouth and talk. Number four, focus on serving and loving that person. It's difficult to complain about somebody that you're trying to busy to show your love to, right? It's also difficult to step in and try to take over when in areas where we shouldn't be taking over when you're busy serving. So you guys are smart. Do something nice for your boss. Go the extra mile. Teens, look around and help your mamas with the chores without being asked. Write notes of appreciation to the elders for the difficult job that they're doing. Um, And wives, maybe submission is especially uh, difficult in this area, again, because of feminism. It's in our head. And I love that Titus chapter 2, verse 4, it's the very first thing that's on the list is to love your husbands. Perhaps because when we're loving our husbands, a lot of those other things fall into place and become a little bit easier. Maybe your husband is not the leader that he should be and you've let a little bit of bitterness grow up in your heart about that. Work on serving him. Work on loving him. You know what it is he likes. Increase those physical touches. Um, Send him love notes. Cook him his favorite meal. Whatever it is. But make the effort. Number five. Be reminded that it's ultimately because you desire to have a good relationship with God. Whether I'm submitting to an employee 
an employer, the elders, the government, my husband, it has no bearing on whether those parties are good. Right? I don't get to just submit to the government only if I like the president. I don't get to just uh, submit to my boss when he's a good boss. Same goes for a husband, same goes for elders. I submit whether they're good or whether they're not. I'll let you guys check this with writing. You want me to say those again? Pray, keep your mouth shut, open your mouth and talk. Focus on loving and serving that person, and then be reminded that it's ultimately because you desire to have a good relationship with God. Attitude number two, for us to be aligned with scripture, we've got to have an attitude of satisfaction. And I think I've decided that one of the questions that I want to ask Paul when we get to heaven is how long did it take you to get to that Philippians 4 point in your life? where you were content with everything, wherever you were, whether you were abased or whether you were abounding, wherever you were to be content. Because that didn't happen overnight in his life. And it doesn't happen overnight with ours. And even when we reach a state of contentment, there's no guarantee that we're going to stay there, right? <laughs> so, whether you're single, married, mother, widow, or any place, any role that you find yourself, what are some things that I can practically do when I struggle with contentment in my role as a woman. Number one, pray, pray, pray. You knew I was going to put that. Number two, read old things. So much of the time, I believe the reason why women have trouble accepting their role is because we're victims of bad marketing. Again, feminism. Any modern-day self-help book that we go and pull off the shelf, it really has the high probability that it's going to be tainted with these feminist ideas woven into them, even from the Christian self-help section. So be um, particularly aware of that. But there are some really great older books out there, whether you're wanting to be happy, happier as a homemaker or a more joyful mother or a, a, a wife that loves their husband better, or widows, children, whatever it is, there's some great titles out there that maybe are older and the cover is not as exciting, but they can really help you in your walk. And so if you have some specific area that you want some books about, I'll be glad to help you after the class um, and talk to, you, talk to you about that. For children's books that are wholesome and God-given roles are promoted instead of being diluted or erased, Look up online the Good and the Beautiful Book List. The Good and the Beautiful Book List. This has all different reading levels on it, and it has been fully vetted. I love that I can just go. I can't, I can't pre-read everything that my children love to read, but I know that I can go to that list and say, here, read this book, and know that it's been fully vetted um, for all sorts of things. That's the Good and the Beautiful Book List. Reading old things, the most important old thing to read is just get in the Word. That's the best thing to read because um, it's going to show us, number one, that God we don't serve a God that tears down women, that he has all along promoted women. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it's what equips us for every good work for our purpose. For those of you that are single, Wayne actually sort of mentioned this in his lesson. So my advice is not for those of you being con um, learning to be content while you're single. My advice is for everyone else. 
stop trying to match make. Sometimes we spend so much time trying to help them with their physical relationships that we are a hindrance to their spiritual relationships with God. Single ladies can be faithful, and they can remain faithful, and they can go to heaven, and that's okay. It may be that they simply want to stay single. It may be that they're a divorcee and they have to stay single. Or maybe they are still struggling to meet that yet un- that desired mate that they just have not met yet and are constant trying to match make probably is making it worse. So find ways to include, find ways to encourage. Um, our congregations as a whole probably could really do a little bit better in this area, I think. So let me repeat. Pray, pray, pray. Read old things. I skipped a few things on my list here for the sake of time. Um, Support those that are single. And number five, or four, whatever number, take a break from social media. I find that this, I have quite a few friends who fit maybe that unconventional role. Maybe they are the breadwinners for their family because their husbands are disabled, or they're the breadwinners for their family so that they can get insurance. Different reasons why. Um, And they find... One in particular lady has said that she really finds that she struggles with contentment in this area because she looks around to see all of these two, a husband and a wife and two children and, and the wife stays at home and all of these things, that it may not just be realistic for their family or in, for, for any family. But she said she um, struggles with comparison and so she's taken social media out of her life because it's one thing for her to walk into the restaurant and to, see the, and to see families there and to struggle with contentment there. But it's another thing to invite that into, your, into her home via her devices. So take a break from social media if you're struggling with your contentment. Number next, edification. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as is fit for the occasion, that it may give grace to all those who hear the temptation is always going to be for us to tear down. And we're women, and we like to talk, and so that's sometimes most likely going to be done with our mouths. So what are some practical ways to edify men and women so that they can be successful in their own roles? Number one, pray for those people, right? Pray for yourself to control your tongue. Pray for those people who you want to specifically make a point to encourage. And then let them know that you're praying for them. Number two, resolve not to complain, particularly about the church. One of the things that we have um, implemented in our family, because I think one of the greatest temptations times to complain is when you get in the car after church or when you go to lunch with a group of friends right after church. So one of the things that we've implemented in our family, and we need to get back into doing this, is we go around the car and everybody gets to compliment something or say what their favorite thing was about worship. I love the prayer that so-and-so led. I love that I saw little Susie going around and hugging all those widows. Find something to compliment and let everybody around you in the table know that you are building those people up and then go resolve to talk to those people and compliment them or write them a note about what they are doing. Number three, compliment girls on their outward appearance, not on their outward appearance, on their inward beauty. Praise young men, whether they're just starting to serve on the table or whether their parents are teaching them to hold the door for the ladies. Compliment them when, they, when you see it. Next, organize a young ladies' event. 
give them opportunities to serve and to lead and help them and let them serve right alongside you. You show them how many things that they can do for the Lord. And I bet Evelyn had a lot more practical things in her lesson, too, this morning. I didn't get to hear it. If there is one thing that biblical feminism has done is it's completely changed the fabric of our society. Employers make hiring and firing decisions now with gender in mind and not just simply merit. Children's book publishers are being pressured to have traditional gender roles removed from the books. Have you listened to the lyrics of the Disney princesses lately, maybe in the past few years, past few decades? With so much bombardment and pressure, it's no wonder that there are so many who could sing right along with Belle. There must be more than this provincial life. And so I want to leave you with a challenge and each of you to be ready to answer the woman in your, a woman in your life that has that thought and to be fully convinced of it yourself because there is absolutely more than a life of rebellion, than a life of discontentment, than a life of derision or an endless search for equality. The solution to the problem of feminism and really any problem for that matter, is Jesus. It's Jesus who has shown us what submission, perfect submission looks like. It's Jesus that gave us the instructions and the example of how to live counterculturally. It's only Jesus that's the source of true contentment, and it's only through him that we can truly attain that equality, Galatians 3, chapter 20, uh, verse 23, that so many people are searching for, equality of salvation and equality of value. And yes, while we as women and men will be forever different, we each have been given the ability to excel in those differences. When it comes to women's roles, we have a choice. And much like that picture of the duck and of the rabbit, it's really how you look at it. We can choose to focus on all those things that we are not allowed to do, and stir up that attitude of discontentment and rebellion. Or we can choose to grow and focus on what we can do. Because as women of God, we make a vital contribution to the kingdom of Christ. Whether we're continuing steadfastly in prayer, whether we're serving and being hospitable, whether we're teaching women and children, whether we're being godly, godly mothers or godly wives, any number of praiseworthy good works that we can be about and winning souls for Christ. And so it's my prayer for each of us that it never be <clears throat> our aim to be known as a feminist, but just simply aim to be known as biblical. Thank you for your attention.